Happy New Year. You're listening to a Living World Conversation. Following a few words, we will replay a conversation recorded in 2011 on January 1. My words are inspired by the Algonquin and Hopi people, as well as the mythologist Michael Mee. I speak to the connection between ancient cultures and our current confusing issues. This is not the first time humanity has faced a crisis. It's happened many times before. In ancient understanding, the world inevitably becomes worn over the course of a year. Life is diminished by mistakes and misdeeds, and the world needs to be renewed. For the Hopi people, the yearly ceremonial cycle begins with the three phases of creation. The first significant ritual is the new fire ceremony. With fire, life begins, symbolized by a flame kindled with flint and native cotton. A timeless moment occurs in which the touch of sacred germination can re-enter the world and everything can start over again. This seems to be lacking in a modern world ruled by linear time. Purification before the new year is like the ancient idea of acknowledging mistakes and misdeeds, wounds and losses from the old year, to clear a way for the renewal of life. Implied is a sense of forgiveness that can release people from patterns of recurring confusion. The Algonquin people know confusion to be the absence of wisdom. As confusion leaves, Creator fills your heart with the light of love. Careful you must be when sensing the future, Anakin. The fear of loss is a path to the dark side. Death is a natural part of life. Rejoice for those around you who transform into the Force. Mourn them do not. Miss them do not. Attachment leads to jealousy. The shadow of greed, that is. You're listening to Yoda from Star Wars. A 900-year-old master Jedi warrior and wisdom holder in the use of power. This is William Evans. We're shifting gears. Our guest today is Evan Pritchard, director of the Center for Algonquin Culture in Woodstock, New York. Happy New Year, Evan. It's good to have you speak with us again. Happy New Year. Well, good to be on. Thank you. The Algonquin people have been gathering and preserving wisdom for many thousands of years on this continent. Tell us, who are they? Well, the Algonquin people are those who speak the Algonquian languages, and it's really one culture uh, that's spread all over the northeastern half of North America. And uh, they all really refer to the Great Spirit as Manitou, or a word that is very similar. And they're generally very uh, peaceful, non-invasive kind of people. When the first colonists came, many of the people they met would have been of these Algonquin people, and that is a word that uh, is used by the state governments and the United States government to refer to these various tribes and nations, which would include my own Micmac people and Wabanakis, but also the Lenape, Ojibwe, Sac and Fox, and even the uh, Powhatan, the Piscataway Pes- uh, Pes- people, and many other, in fact, about 84 well-known tribes or nations are Algonquin speakers and follow that culture and that very ancient way of life 
which is some, one of the most ancient cultures in the world today. All right. Thank you. We're going to play another short clip from Yoda. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Yoda has told us fear is a path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Do those words sound familiar, Evan? Is there a connection between Yoda's wisdom and Algonquin wisdom? Yes, I think there is. And I had worked with a man named Grandfather Turtle that I described in my book, No Word for Time. And he had said uh, very similar words to me. And I had written and referred to this in in No Word for Time. But um, there is a word, Lu Wei Wu Di, referring to all these bad things in my heart. But he said that confusion uh, leads to fear, and fear leads to anger and hate, and that leads to violence, which is a very similar kind of thought, almost identical to what Yoda said. And it was interesting, you know, No Word for Time came out in 1997, and then the movie, The Phantom Menace, which is a wonderful movie that is still playing on TV, came out in 1999, and I kind of jumped out of my chair when I was watching it in the movie theater uh, <laughs> because it's such a similar way of looking at it. But in fact, I think if we look at our inside ourselves and look at our experiences, we find that this is really true and that it's the key to understanding the world's problems today and how to solve them. So what did you learn about fear as a, as a child growing up, Evan? You know, I had a real, I guess I was raised to have a real trust in, in spirit and to uh, not be fearful. And I think that by coming back to the culture, as I have again and again, to the Mi'kmaq culture, part of the Algonquin culture, that I think one r- arrives at a place where one strives to be fearless and one tends to not indulge in fear. And part of that, I think the, a path to that kind of fearlessness is actually there's probably four different ways to approach it. You know, and one is like what I call the madnak or the way of the warrior, which is basically to be self-sufficient so that you can always provide yourself and others and uh, in, the, for example, a wilderness situation. But another way of fearlessness is chichan kwiwi, which is to surrender your heart to the creator like a child to its parent so that you totally trust in the creator and you have no fear. You know, there are other ways as well. The way of the heron, to follow the way of the heron, is to be clear mentally so that you're not confused because, of course, the confusion would lead to fear. So those are some of the pathways to, to fearlessness through the strong body of the warrior, through the clear mind of the heron, and through the open heart of surrender, but also, of course, the fire of spirit or the shaman's way, where you're able to rise out of your physical body and see further, like the eagle. The shamanistic journey leads to knowledge of the future, which, of course, you know, reduces the amount of fear because you're not attached to that, as Yoda said. So uh, there are actually four ways, uh, but the most prominent that I've seen is that if you feel you have knowledge and skill in order to deal with situations, then you don't fear them. You simply respond to them without fear. It is an extremely important part of Algonquin culture, and it's almost like a stereotype of, you know, the fearless, brave, whatnot, and we deal with that stereotype, because not all people are 
equally fearless, but but it's something that is important because in terms of Algonquin society, it's believed that if you address small iniquities and, you know, mistakes, right, you nip them in the bud and they don't become overwhelming. And so people who are a little bit of a trickster don't become tyrants because ultimately they will if they are left unchecked. So it's very important on every level. Certainly we see confusion at the root of a lot of the contemporary fear. And notice that there are some people who intentionally create confusion. Right. What do Algonquin elders do when they observe that confusion is beginning to grow in a people? Well, I, I noticed that when the Nobel Prize was won by Liu Ziabo, in a, who is living in a Chinese jail right now, that the Chinese created the another Peace Prize at the same time and awarded it to Lian Chan, vice president of Taiwan. And uh, there was a lot of confusion in the headlines over this, especially because Lian Chan, the vice president of Taiwan, was not notified that he had won and did not <laughs> receive it. Um, just in terms of, um, I mean, this is the kind of thing that's going on all over the world. I'm not picking on the Chinese, but it's, you know, politics has been very deceptive lately. In the Algonquin world, the elders immediately uh, jump on something where uh, there's confusion. And they, there's a tendency to want to start things over. Like I was at a sweat lodge a uh, number of years ago with Grandfather Turtle, where a group from uh, some uh, group, someone related to Hinduism, they came in and started, you know, doing uh, Kundalini exercises in the lodge. They were doing chants from their path, and they were actually standing on their heads while the uh, sweat lodge leader was trying to do his job in his culture and according to his, you know, calculations of energy distribution, which are quite sophisticated. And it got very crazy, and things started to go wrong, and people were getting very sick. And so he stopped the sweat lodge ceremony, and he started over all the way from gathering a whole new set of rocks and starting to burn them again, and everybody sat outside and uh, had a chance to communicate. And, of course, communication is you know, one of, in terms of the way of the heron, a great way to alleviate confusion. But also our actions, such as in that case or in the case of the Chinese, are sometimes the cause of the confusion. And so the Algonquin elders tend to take a decisive and dramatic uh, step to stop things and to start over. Because when you start over from the beginning, whatever activity you're doing should come out whole and complete uh, like a flower grows up from the earth. This comes up the right way. If somebody is speaking in a confusing way, also the elder will say, stop, let's start over from the beginning. Can you say that in, in different words? And generally that solves the confusion. You uh, know other ways to avoid confusion, and I think you shared with me before that you'd had some experiences at the Randolph School that helped clear up some confusion. Can you tell us about that? Yes, yes. Uh, Randolph School is, uh, you know, very uh, alternative school for, uh, you know, really focusing on consciousness uh, for children so they learn about the, you know, the broader world. But they were having trouble at that time with bullies. So they had me come in and, and teach the children how to do the talking feather ceremony and all the children together, the bullies and the victims, got together in a circle. And the bullies had to sit there quietly as the feather was passed and listen to how their actions had affected the feelings of others. 
of course, in the in the talking feather ceremony, only the person holding the feather can talk, and uh, the the leader of the of the feather uses this in various ways to help heal the community. For example, you know, if somebody has made a mistake and won't admit it, the elder starts with the feather, and he will or she will admit a mistake that they made with a lots of emotion and some drama and then pass it around. And then the next several people in line will be helpers of the elder and they get the signal and they start to admit their mistakes. And then they hand the feather to the person that's in denial about their mistakes. And nine times out of ten, they, they just can't resist, you know, owning up to their mistakes and assuming they're going to be, you know, supported and, you know, nodded at as the others were and they will be. It's a, a one way to heal. So at the Randolph School, we did that with the Talking Feather, and the school decided to have it uh, every week, to have a Talking Feather every week, and I think they're still doing it 20 years later. <laughs> it's that effective. And there's been other Talking Feather circles uh, where problems were resolved. And I'm going to mention the uh, in 1998, Noetic Sciences had me come in and uh, do a Talking Feather because they felt there was some tension they couldn't quite put their finger on the source of. So we did the talking feather, and it was found that the um, the president of uh, ION, as some people call it, didn't really want to be president. And during the feather, when he got the feather, he said, well, I feel like, you know, safe place to say this, that I really don't feel like I'm right for this job. And that's when Winks Franklin took over, and it came out of that. Feather, and he was successful as leader of that group until 2004, about six or seven years. Right. Uh, that was one example of the magic of the Talking Feather to resolve conflict, some of which uh, otherwise it's very hard to find the what source of the problem is. But also I've conducted anti-bully workshops in middle school where I had a whole day to work with the children and teach them these various techniques and, you know, kind of find ways to deal with the bullies. Because a lot of middle schools have problems with bullies these days, and I think parents out there know this. So this is an Algonquin thing, but Cherokee and Lakota and Sioux also have similar ceremonies. So when the Algonquin elders would sense manipulation in a leader, what would happen? Well, that's a good question, because they had a very, what some people have described as a breakaway political structure or fragile, intentionally fragile structure where if somebody tried to usurp or take over the political structure, it would dissolve in their hands, and another one would rise up spontaneously somewhere else. It's an amazing thing, and it, it does apparently work. Everybody has to have to be very strong in their individual sense of their own rights. So if somebody, uh, a chief, if you want to call it, although that's kind of uh, outside term, the chief is, in the Algonquin society is a very weak position where he simply resolves He's almost like just to resolve conflict among the council members and to be the again or the finger pointer saying it's your turn. Um, but if this chief became manipulative, then the individuals of the council or the citizens, uh, members of the tribe, would speak up uh, courageously uh, to whatever rhetoric was being used. And if it led to an action that was in violation of, of any of the codes of conduct, uh, conduct or any of the rules of order, then he could be impeached or she could be impeached very quickly. And I, it would depend on the tribal rules as to what 
know, majority, but it would be a majority. Uh, I don't believe it would have to be unanimous, but some councils work on uh, everyone speaking as one. But, yeah, it would be swift, and they would be let go from that position, and there would be an immediate vote for a new uh, chief. Now, the thing is, it's important, is they would not be demonized. It would be very unusual, I think, to have, you know, the chief just ejected totally, and some of them actually win their way back into the good graces of the people. But, you know, they're let go for uh, fairly quickly, and then not rejected from society, but simply from that post for a certain period of time. So it's still inclusive, but yeah, it's based on actions. But the words uh, that are, if they're misused, this would be addressed by anybody and everybody every time. So just to nip that in the bud, so that it would not lead to these uh, actions, which would be, uh, which have to lead to impeachment. Well, it's certainly not surprising to me that people do become confused when there's dishonesty and lies that have become common. Certainly one way to create fear is to tell a lie. Lying creates confusion. Well, yes, and lying is somewhere between a rhetorical device and an action. And uh, in, as in our own law, it, it's a special case, and it's very destructive. There's a, an expression, lying is worse, worse than dying which I've heard from Cherokees, but the Micmacs certainly believe in that, and I think I could say every Algonquin has a streak, you know, where they would say that lying is worse than dying, uh, because it, it's very dis- very disruptive. Sometimes people make poor decisions, and they lead to what I call ethical dilemmas, where they are stuck in their own debt, so to speak, and uh, end up in situations that they don't really want to be in, and so they don't tell people about them, and they start lying about them. And this is especially true with addictions, as I think everybody knows, but there are other cases, too. You just make poor decisions, and you end up with pie in your face, and you just kind of walk around with your head down so nobody sees the pie. But the thing to do is to own up, clean off the pie, and start over and say, look, I admit that I had pie in my face, you know, and uh, give me a break, let's start over. That's more of the, the way of the Algonquin. And we certainly know from the oldest of stories that deceit and lies have been been with us from the very beginning. It seems important not to be surprised when they happen. And how do you handle it when somebody is is not forthright with you, Evan? Well, I'm I'm pretty gentle on people. Actually, um, there is a story about the uh, the first person. You know, the Sky Woman falls from the sky, and she has a daughter, and she has that woman has twins. The twins come out, but the second twin is the one who lies a lot. And he kills the mother by coming out, cutting a hole through her side. And the grandmother finds the dead body and says, who killed this, my, my daughter? And the, the first son is really honest and never can tell a lie. And so the second son, Bucleese, steps up and says, I will tell you the truth, uh, he did it. The other brother did it, it wasn't me. And the grandmother had never heard a lie, nobody had ever lied before the first people so she she just castigates the good brother and it causes tremendous confusion throughout the story because the good brother always ends up being punished and outcast and the bad brother gets all these privileges because they believe what he said so it's important to recognize that people can lie because that actually leads to confusion if you don't honor it 
and sometimes, like, there's a gap there. When somebody lies, there's usually a time lag where you have to kind of do your homework and find out, you know, what the truth is. In the peacemaking process, the way of the heron, there was always a time period where people would get together and more than one person or two people would discuss the problem in the first phase is the fact-finding phase, where people try to put their heads together, share the information they have, and try to determine what the truth is. And until you do that, you can't really have a solution to, a, you know, alternative to violence, because you don't know. Sometimes, uh, you know, there's justification for things. The thing is that I think when somebody lies, it is important to not just jump on them and say, hey, you're lying. The first thing is to find out if you have the luxury of time to find out if, in fact, they're lying. And again, it goes back to our, you know, our legal procedure is similar, is that, you know, you do a finding of fact and you uh, then say, well, is it, you said this, but isn't it true that, you know, and then you state the opposite case and that's that. So handle it, yeah, handle it carefully and respectfully because people have different ways of looking at the same truth. Well, it seems like both survival and responsible governance depend on honesty as well as acknowledging mistakes. What can you tell us about Algonquin governance and diplomacy? Well, I think that, in my observation, Algonquin diplomacy involves, as I've hinted, um, both being very from the heart and authentic with people that you're in opposition to, at the same time treating them really well and showing them through your actions that you care. And I think that European diplomacy has perhaps drifted in the direction of being a little phony by saying that somebody's great and their actions are fine. In fact, they, they don't feel that way. So it's not from the heart anymore. A little too much of that you know, flattery, trying to get you something. And in these days, with all the, you know, there's nuclear arms and conflict everywhere, I think it's important to have a certain amount of tact. But the Algonquin diplomacy, people speak honestly and directly and from the heart and with authenticity, at the same time showing great respect for the opposite party. Uh, and I, I just think it's funny that uh, the WikiLeaks phenomenon Although it's illegal and probably unfortunate, many of the things that are being leaked are these very from-the-heart truths that some of our diplomats are saying to each other and not to the other party. And I just think from a Native perspective, that's kind of funny. And maybe it does serve as some kind of medicine, you know, that people are uh, being revealed as, as being two-faced in a sense. But we all know that politics can lead to that. But in the way of the heron, you would speak very honestly to your party and then maybe give them a gift or even the shirt off your back to show that you're equal and that you, you respect them. Hmm. I know it's been very helpful for me sometimes to be able to work with a talking stick, and I noticed you used the word talking feather. Yeah. Uh, what can you explain to us about that? Yes, well, I have a, a new book called Bird Medicine, and people can get it through my website, which is www.algonquinculture.org Eagles are considered pure messengers for the spirit and other, all the birds are messengers in various ways but the eagle and sometimes the hawk are considered to be a very reliable uh, and authentic messenger of the spirit world 
and the same thing with the the feather in a sense is uh you know when one holds the eagle feather the tradition says that that you can't lie that you have to be authentic because you're touched by the purity of the creator so they use bird feathers and of course the tradition now uh is changed with you know the migratory bird act is being enforced and in order to protect the lives of eagles and the native people green card carriers and all that can use those feathers but bird feathers are of all kinds are substituted for the eagle with great effect and birds are in the messengers and the feather uh, contains or embodies the wisdom of the bird and so we use the feather in Algonquin culture because the birds have such a unique role and the feather in the circle actually has a similar role it it protects and uplifts us all right thank you this is William Evans I'm speaking with Evan Pritchard, director of the Center for Algonquin Culture in Woodstock, New York. Evan, our conversation leaves me with one final question. We started out listening to Yoda explain fear of loss as a path to the dark side. And as we watch our culture and government being controlled more and more by fear, it seems the people who survive and thrive through these times may well be those who maintain a functional form of governance and relationships amidst the chaos. And those who, in your words, have courage with caution. Well, you know, from the beginning, when the colonists came, the Algonquin people were very open to sharing a culture that they strongly believed in. And in some cases, the colonists didn't respect that culture. In some cases, they did and were very open to learning about it. And Unfortunately, some of them tried to take over, and so there's kind of this expression, uh, you're welcome to sit with us and work with us, but don't take over. And I I find it, you know, humorous, but in another case, it actually has happened, and I've seen that happen. Um, So that has never really changed. There's always been an openness among the Algonquin people to share this culture they believe in with, with all kinds of people, and William Commanda, who is... Uh, a man that I've worked with for many years now, is, has always uh, tried to teach the people uh, of all races because the Seven Fires prophecies teach that if we don't all start following, you know, in the world, everybody, kind of following the Red Road in some way, then we could all be doomed. It's pretty clear. So, you know, he's been keeping that door open. The thing is that, yeah, there's always all kinds of you know, uh, some of the confusion can go the other way and start infecting Algonquin society. And so there's an immediate, oh, well, let's, you know, let's stop this and let's start over. Uh, when Robert Jewett came on the boat with Henry Hudson in 1609 to the state that I moved to, that state, you know, has been, I think, affected both by the Algonquin culture that is still uh, the spirit of the land, but also by this kind of uh, fear that Robert Jewett brought with him from Europe. It's just this paranoid fear of everything and everybody. And he ended up killing 13 Algonquins in his imagined self-defense. And that kind of, you know, every man for himself is unfortunately still tainted uh, the New York area where he explored. At the same time, the Algonquin spirit is everywhere also. The spirit of uh, being close to the land and trusting in the power of the land as uh, that we are all the children of Mother Earth and we're all equal. Evan, 
As I listen to you, I realize we can't become Algonquin. However, we can each courageously claim our own cultural authenticity in relationship with the earth and all our relatives. Thank you.